Welcome to CarePod, a safe place to educate, inspire, and renew the caregiver. Listen in with our host, Dr. Kipley Bell, as she interviews different experts along the caregiving journey. So I have a very special guest today. He is near and dear to my heart. We have been childhood friends for, it seems, forever and have since reconnected. And, you know, it's a special honor to be able to kind of, what, shoot the marbles with someone as a kid and then turn around as an adult and have mutual respect for one another in the spaces that you operate. So. I am happy to have Mr. Fabian Kennedy here today. He is a social worker uniquely in the research and policy space for the Native American population. And I was really particularly interested in bringing him to the care pod to educate us about this special population and then specifically as it relates to the public health needs, general health needs, and interested interest around our aging loved ones. So welcome so much to the Care Pod, Fabian. So nice to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Bell. It's an honor to be here. Yes. So tell me, I, I'm going to ask what seems some very ignorant questions, if you will, because I'm it's a very curious point for me. Just it's an unknown in terms of understanding tribes and the culture around care, just across very, you know, many different types of cultures, but specifically uh, dealing with Native Americans um, with access to care, with ways of managing their health versus, you know, in terms of Western medicine versus non-traditional ways of uh, caregiving. So I'm just interested before we get into like the public health needs of this population, helping us to lay a foundation on who these people are, particularly your why and what uh, got you to this space. Sure. So, um, so for the native population in the U.S., there's you know there's over 500 tribes, and so. Uh, each tribe, there's a there's a huge diversity in terms of population, in terms of the healthcare needs and the the health the health status, and so you know my experience has been in the northern plains with uh, tribes in South Dakota, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Iowa. Um, it's called used to be called Aberdeen area, now it's called the Great Plains area. So um, though there's there's about um, 18 tribes within that space. And they're a little different. You know, they're, they're large land-based tribes. Some, some tribes, like in Oklahoma, they are dispersed within, throughout the state and within the community. Our tribes in the Great Plains, they're, they're large land-based. So there's a clear uh, boundaries, you know, where the tribal lands start and stop. And so that creates a real unique situation where tribes are responsible for promoting the health of the citizens within uh, those locations. And so that's kind of the, the context that I've been working for the past 18 years. So let me, let me walk back a little bit. How are 
these, I guess, lines of demarcation established? Who determines or does that go back centuries or, goes, you know, it goes back. Here. Not, not, okay. not, not centuries, not centuries, but, you know, with, with our tribes in South Dakota, um, uh, the land boundaries that define the reservations um, were defined through treaties. And so uh, treaties with the federal government where those reservation boundaries were created. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a really long history, one that's not the best because you know, as uh, treaties were, were signed with tribes, the government didn't always fulfill their obligation. And when resources were found in those spaces, attempted to come up with ways to, to infringe even on the spaces that, that they promised were going to be for those communities. So it's, it's really uh, through treaties that most tribal land boundaries have, have been established. Interesting. And so that begs a great question because to me, you know, we, we discuss disparities in healthcare, we dis- discuss access to care. So if there is a history of mistrust on an infringement of an agreement just based on property and land ownership, how does that transcend to trust of healthcare or ways of managing disease? And yeah, if you can expound on that. Sure. And it's not like a, it's not a single event. A lot of people think you know, population were free and then they were put on reservations and it was a single act of violence and and injustice. It was actually multiple acts over time that continued to our lifetime where you've had land that was set aside for native populations in certain areas that uh, in our lifetime were actually taken. So it's not like it was back to antiquity it's 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 actually recent and and that continues with healthcare because each tribe has a unique i guess a unique blend of healthcare um healthcare according to some of those treaties the government the federal government um has a role to play has an obligation to support the healthcare of of native populations federally recognized tribe tribal populations and so um, the Indian Health Service was established to, to fulfill that obligation. And so, so when you look at the country, you'll see that some tribes, the more affluent tribes have taken their shares and they've developed contracts for the delivery of healthcare services. And in, in those instances, you're going to see much better healthcare to those populations. And then um, you've got tribes like largely the majority of tribes in our area where the majority of healthcare is still being administered by the Indian Health Service, which is a federal agency underneath the Department of Health and Human Services. So there's the tribes that receive their services directly from Indian Health Service. It's a government, a governmental agency that's, first of all, never provided their full budget, their full, the full need. And, and so they're doing their best to provide services to 
you know, populations of, of Native people across the country with very limited resources. And so what does the, well, there's a few, there's a few things I want to ask within that. So each tribe has a, a leader, if you will, correct me, that establishes these guidelines or the liaison to their private community, to the government to help kind of negotiate or how is the inner tribe workings of the hierarchy? How is that established? Well, again, each tribe is going to be different. And then um, there's a kind of like a saying that if you know one tribe, you, you know exactly one tribe. So, so some of the, your knowledge may or may not be transferable to how other tribes do business. Um, each tribe has the ability to organize itself the way that, that they want to. So in many cases, there's a tribal council and that tribal council, they're elected by the people, similar to like a, a, a congressional body. And then, and then they'll, they'll also have like a president and vice president, because depending on the tribe, they'll have specific roles and responsibilities. But um, you're speaking about how a tribe engages in healthcare, and it's 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 a government to government relationship from the tribal government to the federal government. Okay. So, for example, the tribe that I work for is it's the Oglala Sioux tribe, and you know, they've developed a relationship with the federal government where the tribe administers some of the services like addiction services, but then the emergency department, the pharmacy, mental health services are still administered directly by Indian Health Service. So if we were to go to our next tribe over, Rosebud, which is the, the Shichanku Oyate right next to us, you know, they might have a different blend of tribal administered and federal government administered uh, healthcare services. So two things, how, what, I guess, from your, your research and policy perspective, would you define as, or, or if you were the mouthpiece for this community, what would you say that the Native American population and or tribes that you've worked with would define as good healthcare? Like, are we doing, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? And is that different than the challenges that we're experiencing as a, as a general population? I think some of the, the healthcare issues that are present at the general population, some of them might be exacerbated within Native communities. You've got uh, the issue. I think some of the things that we, we do well, I think when the tribe begins to take ownership, its own healthcare, and, and then establishes how that is going to look, I think we see better outcomes. We certainly see better outcomes when we look at tribes like in the Southwest that have taken more ownership of their healthcare services. And we have reason to believe because the tribe is, is directing that and there's accountability to the people and there's accountability to the leadership. Um, the way that those healthcare services are going to look. I think over the past several years, there's definitely been a movement to implement more evidence-based practices. And when that happens, I think we see better outcomes. Like, for example, I'm really proud of my tenure, you know, as I, I was able to, I had the honor to direct the addiction services 
of the Oglala Sioux Tribe for, for seven years. And we, we implemented medication-assisted treatment. We implemented a recovery support model, um, cognitive behavior therapy, kind of replacing some of the older models um, like 12-step um, motivation interviewing. Just, we, we put a lot of things into place that I'm just really proud of. And, um, but of course, it, there always needs to be more work. I mean, there's, there's so much work to do and we need to continue Absolutely. on that work. Well, but even that, it's refreshing to hear, um, and maybe that's my own lack of knowledge, but just refreshing to hear that there is the population embraces these uh, various options afforded to them and embraces the structure um, and that you did see positive outcomes as a result of the, the implementation. So switching gears a little bit, tell me your why. You know, I like to ask every CarePod guest, you know, their why, what causes you, what drives you to serve this population in this manner? Tell me, tell me that. I don't even recall particularly even us as children, the connection or how you got here. So I'm very curious on that regard as well. Yeah, when I was a kid, I'm not sure if I, if I had an idea. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't have an idea about healthcare. Even, even in graduate school, I didn't have an idea that I was going to be in, in healthcare. I, I knew that I wanted to do some work in social sciences and that was it. So when I, uh, I went to college at Black Hill State University, that was probably one of the best decisions. I loved that institution. Um, it was, I was a little backward myself. I'm not sure if you recall that, no. but I think if I went to like a bigger university, <laughs> I think I would have been lost. So it was, it was a small university. I was able to, to know my professors and I think somewhere, I think maybe in my sophomore or junior year, I began working at this place called Wellspring. It was a youth treatment center. And I think about 85% of the clients, the youth were, were from one of our South Dakota reservations. And, I, and at the time, this was the late 90s, at the time, the agency that I worked for was one of the only places that employed Native workers. Like if you were to go to these other facilities, they would have Native kids and you, you would see no Native workers working with these children. It was absurd. But the one thing that our agency did was they employed people of color. And of course, they, they employed everybody of all races, very in inclusionary. Uh, and and those, those, when they say diversity is a strength, I'll tell you why. Because those Native employees, regardless of whether they had a license or whether they didn't have a license, because there was a mixture of both, they really advocated for culture and cultural inclusion into the program, right? And a lot of these kids, most of them came from broken homes, um, homes that they were in the system, child welfare system, and they had um, behavioral problems and substance abuse problems and instability. And we began doing some really, no funding. We, they didn't give us, I mean, they gave us a little tiny paycheck. It's not even minimum wage today. But we began to do things like 
expose these young people to cultural activities, some ceremonies even, and taking them to sacred locations. And then we were telling them, this is the history of, of this. This is why we, we go to these places. And I remember I had experience with one young person who he had gotten himself into trouble at school. He had taken drugs to school and I was the staff person I had to confront him when he came back. And we had just went to, we had taken him and, and mind you, the kids also were demanding it. So the kids were like, take us here, take us there, take us to all these places. They had heard of all these places, but they had never gotten a chance to go. Like Bear Butte, for example, is to a sacred location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we took them. And this young man, we took him, and not just at the advocacy of these Native staff people, but also at his own advocacy. So I had to confront this young guy. And this guy was a guy who spent his whole entire life in the system. He came from the children's home, and now he's nearly an adult. And he had basically used violence to deal with all of his problems. And when he was a little kid, maybe it was cute, right? Because he would act out and the staff would just ha 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 and push him down. But now he's nearly 17 or six, he's either 16 or 17, you know, coming to an age where you can't use violence. And, you know, it was, you know, my obligation to tell him you can't use violence because although you have done that your entire life, now we're looking at legal problems. And I'm not sure if you remember, Kipley, but when you and I were kids, kids could act out. Kids could fight at school. The cops would never have been called. You know, it would have been an unza- oh, it would have been a butt whooping. And that was <laughs> it. They, they, they call you, you get a butt whooping, and it'd be solved. But nowadays, you know, there's there's the police, you can go to all kind of issues. Yeah, yeah. So so, so I, had to, I had to confront this guy and I had to tell him like, hey, look, you know, the, you, you got to do things differently. And he started, he started a whole full display of like, okay, I knew this is going to lead to violence. Because <laughs> it always had before. And I just reminded him, I said, what did we do this past weekend? And he told me what we did. And I said, so you're going to hit me after what we just did? It's going to be violent. That's what we're. Gonna, that's what's going to. That's what's going to happen. And I think he thought about it, and then he snatched the papers because I, I said, "You need to." So one of the things that we had to do was we had to have them process. So when they did something wrong, they had to process it, and the processing usually involved writing what happened, and then writing the steps where they went wrong. So I was trying to tell them, you know, you're going to have to process this whether it's now or tonight or tomorrow or the next day, but you're going to have severe restrictions until we, we kind of get this ball rolling. And he was telling me, no, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to do that. Fabian, you know, you might be in the hospital. I said, so I told him, I said, you know what? I'd be happy to go to the hospital because I'll sit in my hospital bed knowing I did everything I could by you. And that's when he snatched those papers <laughs> and he started working. And I said, that right there was my uh, impetus, I guess my epiphany. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking, this is, this is what we need to be doing. You know, this is, 
So I've spent my entire career trying to, you know, make sure that there's cultural inclusion because all of the talking, all the Western ways, I don't think it really impacted him as much as us taking him to his own cultural events, being there with, with him, doing that with, with him. And then now, and then one other quick story is a couple years back, somebody was in my DMs, an adult woman. And she said, do you remember me? I said, not really. And she said, you took us to Bear Butte when I was in that program. And I all of a sudden remembered who that particular, I don't remember taking her to Bear Butte, but I do remember her as a person. She's Just doing very well, has that, a family. Yeah. Just yeah, has a family I, people. Mm-hmm. And, and is a professional in, in uh, Rapid City here and just seems to be doing very, very well. Yeah. And so those are the things that I thought, you know, that kind of um, give me the motivation to, to do what I do. And, you know, it's, it's really, uh, that's really an important point because you know, I think it's important to understand generally, you know, that when we look across at one another, whether we are different in race, gender, creed, what have you, socioeconomic status, that there is a shared humanity and there is a commonality. But I think going deeper, it is something to be said when a, a patient or a client can say, you know what, you see me because you understand my experience and my path. And it sounds like you have been able to be the gateway for some of these kids that have lived dysfunctional situations and able to expose them to their own heritage. Want to be a part of our growing, impactful caregiving community? Sign up at impactfulcaregiving.com. You know, I think even more so, I hear a theme of peace, of self-control, self-discipline among the tribe and this population that we don't necessarily uh, uh, employ generally. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So, um, so there's a, there's a, there's so much to be said about the, our population here in South Dakota, Nebraska, North Dakota. When largely a lot of my work has, has been with alcohol and substance abuse. And when you think about alcohol, you know, when you think about the mainstream alcohol and the mainstream is almost part and parcel with one another, you know, um, birthdays, family events, all kinds of you know, alcohol is a central theme. And um, alcohol is, is not doesn't have a real place in traditional, among the traditional people here. Of course, there's a diverse, you know, natives are diverse like anybody else. There's people who are, who, you know, um, have all different beliefs now, but amongst the the people who hold on to some of the traditional belief systems, alcohol doesn't really have a place. So as that makes my job a little easier in public health and behavioral health, because there's no place, just like smoking, there's no place. 
So you don't have to negotiate with alcohol. You know, it's it's something that if, if a person comes in and says, hey, listen, I really want to get to know my culture. I really want to, you know, practice this kind of lifestyle, this way of life. At, once they say that, you no longer have to negotiate with alcohol because it doesn't, you know, because as behavioral health folks, we just, our job is to be the mirror. Our job isn't to set the values. Our job is to, is to show someone how congruent they are with those values that they profess, regardless of what they are. And so when somebody professes that, then it's pretty easy because there's a clear delineation and there's no room for alcohol use. And um, a lot of people, I guess statistics surrounding Native populations are just a lot of misinformation and wild. Um, So we actually have some of the highest abstinence rates. So there's a huge proportion of the population that, that don't engage in alcohol use at all. But among those individuals that do, there's a higher rates of alcohol use disorder. So it's a real unique, when we just kind of blanket people, regardless of who they are, whether they're black or white or native, when you start throwing blankets on people, you know it's wrong. And mm-hmm. so there's a real unique um, opportunity for public health and for people that are interested in promoting public health in Indian country specifically, and I guess my my knowledge is really limited to the to the Great Plains, Northern Plains. I can't mm-hmm. say that I understand folks in the Southwest or California or anywhere else, but here, you know, it's, this is where I have my knowledge base. But at least here, you know, there's there's lots of assets to to draw on. So tell me uh, two things. Is the terminology Indian inappropriate now? Is that not PC? Because I know the Indian Health Service, right? That terminology used uh, by the government, but yet we are now, uh, you know, now our directive is to use Native American. So what is appropriate? What is acceptable? So that's going to be personal. I I mean, my opinion is going to be person to person. People have different opinions on on that. Um, a lot of I think people around here like the term native. They use the word native or indigenous. But like for example, when we when we write our our, our grants, we usually use the term American Indian because that's the term that Indian Health Service uses, American Indian Alaska Native. But I think people really like, for the most part, prefer to be called by their tribal name. So like, for example, I work with the Oglala Lakota. So that's really the best term to use. So you know, if you're working with a specific population, you're gonna use that. Not what other people call that tribe, but what that tribe calls itself. Interesting. Um, so, like, so like, for example, um, here in South Dakota, the outside name would be Sioux and they call but but people don't use that. I mean, and and the tribe is called Oglala Sioux Tribe, but the people are Oglala Lakota Oyate, which is which is what they would call themselves, the, the Oglala Lakota people. Interesting. So those are those are just things yeah. that you just you know, just like your friend, you know, like if you have a friend of any, you know, and you're developing relationships, you would ask, you defer to them. So what what would you like to be called? 
interesting. You know, just it's the best approach. Yeah, yeah. Approach. So, do these different tribes, uh, the names, do they have specific meaning? Yes, they all have meanings. <laughs> they all have meanings, and so we've got we've got nine tribes in South Dakota. They're all a, a part of what's called the Ocheti Shakoni, which is the seven. They're the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota speaking people. Uh, similar, the seven, they call it the seven council fires, but it's all a ethnic and political and linguistic group of people. So they're related, all the tribes here in, in South Dakota. So tell me, I have an upcoming podcast guest, care pod guest uh, from Egypt, and uh, he was sharing with me the reverence, you know, in the Egyptian culture for our age people. And, you know, that's something that I would believe I share with you even and growing up as children, we, you know, even the cohort is different in terms of our reverence for our older people then versus what we witness now. And even as we teach our own children, so I'm curious within the native population, what is the culture? Is there around that? Is there a specific narrative or directive for you know native people and how they revere their elderly? And what are the public health initiatives around this population specifically? Sure, Def- definitely there's differences among the cohorts you definitely see that. I, I think that there's been changes in, in the way people perceive that older generation from when I got here in the 90s till now, for sure. And so there's generally a reverence for the elder population. And unlike the mainstream, like I think the mainstream, if because I, I remember I, I was here first and then I went to graduate school and I remember a situation where I think I, I called someone an elder right after I was here. And that was a no-no, you know, and I was in, I went to Washington, DC for graduate school. And I think it was a no-no, you know, but Interesting. here people embrace the term elder. And I, you know, had to quickly snap back to maybe a different way of uh, thinking. Because here you can call somebody, I mean, if you call them an elder, it's, it's a sign of respect. But maybe outside of here, you can't call people elders. Um, I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a, a, a reverence for people who have the knowledge, um, especially as the language becomes more challenged. People who have the knowledge of the because the language is also a completely different way of thinking. So that represents a completely different paradigm from Western thought, completely different paradigm. And so you can't really understand that paradigm without the language, it's impossible. The keepers of that knowledge, elders are, are, are respected for, for the knowledge of stories. It's, it's, there's oral history, there's the protocol, there's teachings around different things and elders are able to provide that. So I think a lot of people really have uh, a longing to to try to understand uh, the culture as much as they can. 
I really have been, I think, desperate to get to the root cause of, you know, how we are making uh, caregiving, caring of our elders, of our aging loved ones, so complicated, so stressful, less impactful, you know, more harried and disconnected, both from a collegial standpoint, from a clinician to family interaction, uh, the narratives that, uh, you know, these patients aren't heard. So is there anything different? Is there a public health theme within the native uh, elder population that's different in terms of their healthcare needs specifically? Like for instance, I see the trifecta constantly of diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, heart disease, stroke, uh, the multiple comorbid conditions that are not managed well that ultimately lead to bad outcomes. And so I was just curious, are you not seeing this in your, in the native population? No, we, we, we definitely see it. You know, the life expectancy among uh, Native men specifically is is probably the lowest out of any group in the country. Wow. And um, yes, and women, unfortunately, women are not far behind. And so we we there's issues with diabetes. The Native population is overrepresented in in diabetes, diabetes risk factors, heart disease, all the risk factors like smoking, physical activity. So that's the that's the difficult part. So so I guess the I'm gonna talk about the positive part and the difficult part. The positive part is I'm speaking for myself, not anyone else, because mm-hmm. people might disagree. But you know, the way that I see that the tribe taking care and tribal programs taking care of the elder population, you won't see that anywhere else. There are services to just all layers of the community, but there's programs that provide food to elders. People complain about it, but honestly, there's no other community, you know, and and coming from a Jamaican background, you know, there's not, if, if you don't have the means to provide food and all these other resources, you're not gonna have it. You're just gonna be without it. But the tribe, provides this amazing safety net. COVID was an amazing example. What people are complaining throughout COVID, and I couldn't believe it because my family, when my family caught COVID, the tribe showed up with boxes and boxes of food, fresh fruits, meat. And it wasn't, I mean, and, and, and everybody received this throughout COVID. The tribe was so amazingly supportive. There's not anything I, I, I think, I've seen anything anywhere in the country that I think has have where people have really been supportive. I think that oftentimes we take it for granted what the tribe does for wow. the community. So literally, and, my um, brother's even, keeper. Literally, literally, my brother's literally, keeper. Literally, literally, and and the tribe doesn't always get the the respect. I think. I mean, the government. When I say the tribe, I mean the government tribal government doesn't always get the respect that I think that they deserve and the schools the same way the schools go and my children have gone to tribal schools 
And I am a hundred percent supporter of tribal. I mean, I've never seen the type of support from non-tribal schools that I've seen at tribal schools. It's, they go beyond the calling of education to something completely different. And elders, I, I think, you know, also receive a lot of support um, from the government. But at the same time, the, the not so positive side is there are all these, there's a, just a myriad of health issues that are faced in Indian country, um, in, in our region, that mm. we have to figure out how are we going to effectively address it. I think that we make progress, but I think that there's so much further for us to, to try to um, do, I think, a good, before we say we're doing a good job, we have so much further to, to go and that's behavioral health, that's physical health, prevention. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much to do and we really need to work together, pull up, roll up our sleeves and, and, and get it done. Absolutely. And it's, you know, so that sounds like the, the same commonality that is experienced uh, in, in a non-traditional sense of traditional medicine, if, I, if, I, if you will. Is the non-native clinician welcome? Um, I think so. Um, I think that, again, that's a broad statement. So I think that there can be some individuals who come here and um, depending on their, it's again, it's like a different, it's a different world mm -hmm. in Indian country. And so there's different communicative styles now, one of the things that I noticed, because I've I've lived amongst West Indian people, Americans, natives, the one thing that I noticed is that we are all highly annoyed by each other's communicative style, and it mm. doesn't. So, so African Americans can't stand the Anglo American communicative style, and as proof of that, there's. Our comedians are constantly making jokes of it, right? It, there's something about it that annoys us about other people's communi communicative style. And I think that when providers come, if they're not aware of that, just their normal way of talking is going to annoy people. Very, so, very and, interesting. So some That's people will come here and be you know, welcome and other people, you know, depending on, like if they're talkers, less welcome than if if they're you know listeners than active listening interesting yeah. and particularly you know the heart knows sincerity at the end of the day too yeah. uh so yeah that's that's really powerful that's powerful um wow talk about an education today talk about an education i'm i'm so appreciative of this knowledge just um i think if we had more of these conversations you know, amongst friends, amongst differences across uh, the table, we can uh, better support one another, you know, in this journey. Uh, anything you'd like to share with our CarePod community that I might not have asked? Sure, you know, um, again, you know, working in Indian country has been an absolute blessing for me. I mean, I've it's taught me things about myself. It's taught me to appreciate my own culture uh, a little more. It's extremely difficult. It's it's not easy to go and live within 
someone else's culture. I think even being black, it's hard to go places. And there's things that you have to, you have to be a bigger person. You've got to be, you've got to be okay with not everybody liking you. And you have to be okay with, you know, rolling up your sleeves and coming alongside people. And, you know, some people have, you know, absolutely appreciate me being there. Um, some people don't, you know, that's just the way that it, it's going to go. And you have to have thick skin. So it's, it's not something, it's not for everybody, I think. But I, I often thought about, and a matter of fact, when I first graduated, graduated with my master's degree, I actually applied to jobs in Jamaica and throughout the Caribbean. I, I tried. And I didn't get I didn't get so much as a callback for any one of them, but you know I often kind of when things get rough I think well maybe I should just pack up and go. But at the end of the day, you know I think I'd probably have the same difficulties, you know, going back amongst home. your own. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty I, sure. I and then <laughs> the one thing I think I could do better is, you know, I'm here. So I, I can keep my mouth shut better. <laughs> if I was amongst my own, I think I would talk more and get in more trouble. <laughs> I get that. I get that. I get that. I get that. You know, it's, um, it is, and I think that's what I mean about sincerity, the heart knows sincerity, because at the end of the day, the heart doesn't know color, but oftentimes that is our first barrier, you know, that we see our differences instead of our shared humanity. Um, so keep doing what you're doing because you clearly have had great impact and I'm just honored to have you here with us. And I thank you for joining the Care Pod. Dr. Bell, thank you so much for your time. Great information right from the source. For more information on how to care give like a boss, check out impactfulcaregiving.com. Want to be a guest on the show? Contact us at carepod at impactfulcaregiving.com.